As you head back, uh, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, it's on page 978 in the Red Bible. We're continuing to work through Ephesians. My goal is to finish Ephesians uh, before the second Sunday in September, because that is a great time to launch into a new series. And so, Lord willing, we will get through this. And uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful letter to study. Um, but we're looking forward to what's next. So I'm not sure what we're going to be preaching on. Something from the Old Testament, for sure. Uh, still figuring out what exactly God wants me to preach on then. But um, this week I was looking at an article online by Brandon Lindahl, and it's entitled, The Five Most Accurate Body Language Interpretations of the Way You Walk. And what he is saying is that you can look at the way people walk and you can tell a lot about how they see themselves, what they're going through in life. You can even tell a lot about their character and their emotional state. Some of those are very obvious to us. For example, if you see a person who has a lively spring to their step as they're walking down the street and they're smiling, you know that they are a very happy person at that point in time. Where if you see a person who is hunched over, dragging their feet, it's a person who has felt dejected uh, or rejected and is sad. If you look at someone who has an upright posture that is walking from point A to point B, looking at their watch, you know it's a person who is very driven, someone who is very confident. If you see someone who is walking with folded arms like this, maybe you know someone who walks a lot with folded arms. According to Brandon, the reason why they walk with folded arms is because they are uncertain about what is going on. They are a little bit scared, a little bit defensive, a little bit protective, a little bit anxious. And so they self-hug themselves to reassure themselves that the situation is going to be okay. Or finally, he talks about people that walk with hands in their pockets. And you might be getting uncomfortable because I'm talking about you in some of these. But he says for people who walk with hands in their pockets, oftentimes these are very private people, very introverted people, people who don't like to share what is going in, on in their life. They're often very anxious, very cynical, um, many times tend towards depression. But through this article, what he's arguing is that when you see the way a person walks, it tells you a lot about who that person is. It tells you a lot about how they see themselves. Furthermore, how they see themselves is reflected in how they walk. And that's what we're going to look at today. Paul says in the first three chapters of Ephesians, this is who you are in Christ. You have been purchased by the Redeemer. You are now a son, a daughter of God, and so now walk in that way. And so the first three chapters, he lays out all the riches that we have in Christ. And then starting in chapter 4 and in the second half, he tells us, this is how you now walk as one who has received all these blessings in Christ. So just to walk through a little bit of them with you, it says in Ephesians 4.1, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 4.17, you must no longer walk as in Gentiles do. Ephesians 5.8, which we looked at last, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, As beloved children of God, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then Ephesians 5.8, you are light in the Lord, walk 
as children of light. In all of these, Paul isn't just saying, here, do this and do that, do this and do that. He's reminding them of who they now are in Christ. That now they are the called. Now they are not the pagan Gentiles. Now they are no longer, now they are the beloved children of God. Now they are light. And so they should walk according to who they now are in Christ. And then one more time this week, he gives us instruction once again how we should walk. And that's what we're going to look at. And so let's look together at Ephesians chapter 5, page 978 in the Red Bible. We're going to read verses 15 through 20. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we come to your word this morning knowing that it is right and true, Lord. We are commanded throughout Scripture to seek wisdom. In Proverbs, wisdom is like a woman calling out in the streets, beckoning someone to come and listen to her. God, you call us to wisdom, but so often we pursue foolishness, Lord. We return to the same sin, expecting different results, but always ending up empty, God. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help to, to show us how to walk in the wisdom that you have given us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. There is an assumption here that those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, are wise, that you have wisdom, not that you necessarily know the Pythagorean theorem or that you know quantum physics or anything like that, but you have a wisdom that only belongs to those who are in Christ. First Corinthians one actually talks about this. It says Christ is the wisdom of God. First Corinthians one thirty says you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And so Christ is wisdom, and it goes on to say that this wisdom, Christ, lives in you. That you have become wise onto the spiritual things of this world. That you have now understood your own condition, your own sinfulness and brokenness before God. That you have become wise to the character of God. That He is holy, that He is just. And you have become wise to salvation. You have become wise to the gospel, the good news that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us that we might live with him for all eternity. And so this is wisdom that you now have if you are in Christ. You not only know it intellectually, you know it personally. And he calls you to live as wise because you are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are wise, it is foolish to walk as a fool. Now what does it look like to walk in wisdom? And that's what we're going to look at today. And Paul's going to detail how walking in wisdom means that we are redeeming our time, that we are understanding the Lord's will, and that we are being filled 
with the Holy Spirit. And those are the things that we're going to look at today. So first, let's look and see his calling for us to walk in wisdom by redeeming our time. Look in verse 16 with me, if you would. Keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking back to this passage a lot. Ephesians 5, 16, it says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What, what does Paul mean the days are evil? That's kind of depressing, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of a downer. I mean, it's not very optimistic. What Paul is talking about is the flow of redemption, the story of redemption. You see, God created everything very, very good. In the beginning, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there was no death, and there was no sin. The days were not evil. The days were very, very good. The days were paradise. But as you, many of you know the story, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, to rebel against God, to sin against God. And when they ate of the fruit, the days became evil. We live in a time period where the days are evil, where sin abounds, where brokenness abounds, where where destruction abounds, where tornadoes and earthquakes abound, where death abounds. The days are evil. All you have to do is flip on the news and very quickly you will see there is evil in the world or look inside your own house or your own heart and you'll see that there is evil abounding. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says something that is absolutely amazing here. He says, making the best use of the time. Now, the way that is literally translated from the original language of Greek is he is saying, redeeming the limited time. He's saying, you have a limited amount of time on this earth. All of us have a limited amount of time in a day. And he says, you can use it for the redemption of God. You can use it to bring all things back to the created order. You can reverse the effects of the fall by redeeming what is broken, by redeeming what is sinful. He says, redeem it, bring it back. Let me give you an example of what redemption looks like. My garage has been extremely dirty for months and months on end. I'm sure none of you can relate to this. Wives, don't jab your husband, all right? But my my garage is, I mean, there are like 20 bikes, no kidding, like tricycles, bikes, for every age, we could become a store. We have all these bikes. We have dust everywhere. Uh, we have sawdust. We have wood. We have we have like ladders leaning. We have my my workbench is covered with stuff. I can't even put anything on it. Well, this past Thursday, I decided enough is enough, and so I took everything out of the garage and I swept it out and I cleaned it out and then I put everything back in its place. And so I created a bucket for all my electrical stuff. And so I put every all the electrical stuff in that bucket. I put. Everything, all the screws, anything with threads, I put on one shelf. Uh, nails, I put on another shelf. And so I, I sorted everything else out, and I brought order back to the garage so that it could return to its original purpose. My wife, in the middle of summer, parked in our garage. That is a miracle. I mean, that is phenomenal. You know, in winter we do that, but she parked in there the last few days. She didn't even know it was going to be a part of the sermon. But it was redeemed. It was returned back to its original purpose order was restored you see god is a god of order but the fall and sin and brokenness brings chaos to our lives and so god says you are part of my redemption to restore my order for my glory wherever you go i I was in a bible study one time and a a friend of mine remarked that because jesus died for our sins nothing matters anymore 
And, and I remember what he was saying, and I understood what he was saying, that, that there, is, there is a priority to Christ's death on the cross, that it is glorious what he has done, and everything else is held below it. But what we're reading here in Ephesians 5.16 is that because Jesus died on the cross, everything matters now. Everything matters. Everything can be redeemed. Your schooling, your work, your marriage, all of it is subject to the redemption of God. And we are called to be God's agents of redemption. And so there are things in your life which you know are off. Things that are broken. Things that are not right. Maybe it's at your school. You see kids bullying other kids or you see kids cheating on tests or you see kids doing things that are not right and not good. And God is calling you to be an agent of redemption, to go with love and compassion and justice and restore the order that God intended for his glory. It is a long road, but we get to be a part of God's redemption, that you get to study in a way that is praising to God. Or in our marriages, there are times where we say, this is not right. My marriage is not where it should be. This order needs to be restored. And so it causes us to go and to repent to our spouse, to forgive our spouse. Maybe it, it means to go get counseling, but it's part of redeeming everything for the glory of God. And so everything you do in life now has drastic importance to it because it, you are a part of God's redemption wherever you go. Maybe even God is calling you to redeem your time. Uh, you could sit at the end of the week and look back and sit and think, man, maybe I didn't need to play, you know, 10 hours of video games and eight hours on Netflix. I could have been using that time for redemption. I could have been using that time to help redeem the things around me, to restore my neighbors, to restore my friends, to love those, to fix the things that are broken, to reverse the effects of the fall. And so... God says one way we walk wisely is by redeeming our time. He goes on, and this is directly connected. He says, we also walk wisely by understanding the will of the Lord. Look in verse 17 with me. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So you can see how this is connected to verse 16 of redeeming our time. How do we know how to redeem our time, to redeem our workplace, to redeem our marriages, to redeem our our, our recreation to redeem anything it's by knowing the will of god once we know what the will of the lord is then we can now start redeeming it and bringing redemption to it bringing restoration and bringing order when i look at god's will I, there are two things that are very helpful for me in understanding god's will and i call them god's general will and god's specific will god's general will is god's will for every human being on the face of the earth and this is discovered through the scriptures through reading it it's very plain to see the summary of god's will god's general will is found in the ten commandments something that you all have probably heard of but god's general will for all human beings whether they're christian or non-christian is that they would worship one god the true god the lord that they would not worship idols that they would not take the lord's name in vain that they would remember the sabbath honor their father and mother that they would not murder or commit adultery. And it goes on and on and on. And so these are God's general will for all humankind. But God also has a specific will for us, a will that is particular to your life. For example, I'm very, very thankful that God does not call all men to marry my wife. That would be very difficult for me, right? I'd have to start working out, defending, right? 
protecting my property, stuff like that. Whoa, that sounded bad, but you know what I mean. And so God has a specific will for your life, who you're to marry, where you are to work. You know, I love meeting with people who love their jobs. Not everyone has that, but it is such a great blessing. Meeting with folks who say, I love teaching. I love it. I can't believe I get paid for it. I love being a lawyer. I love being an administrator. I just look at those and I think, wow, I'm glad you like it because I don't, you know. God has a specific will for my life that I would be a pastor. And I love doing this job. And not everybody would. But God has a specific will for your life, a specific design for your life. And Paul is calling us here to discover that. And it will never break God's general will. So God will not call you to covet your neighbor's house. He won't call you to, lot, to, to bear false testimony. He won't call you to, to break his general will. But he has a specific will for your life. Now, some of you are struggling to find that. And it is a very difficult place to be. And I just want to encourage you that the God who gives a specific will for your life, who has a specific purpose for your life, is the same God who has perfect timing. Seek his will and he will reveal it in his perfect timing. And so the command is to understand the will of the Lord so that we can redeem these days that are evil. Finally, he says one way that we walk wisely is by being filled with the Spirit. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this part. Uh, I I just admit right up front, uh, a sermon by Tim Keller that I listened to on this was extremely impactful, and so much of it comes from him. But as you look at verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which means excess. But be filled with the Spirit. You know, it's very interesting that Paul would put drunkenness next to being filled with the Spirit. I mean, why why didn't he put something else? And the reason why he put drunkenness is because there are some similarities between drunkenness and between being filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness gives you boldness. It makes you happy, right? It makes you a little bit jolly. It, It warms you a little bit. The Holy Spirit does that as well, but there is a great distinction between the two. There are great differences between the two that are so extremely important. The first is that alcohol is a depressant. Many of you know that. You've heard that from doctors, that it ultimately leads people towards depression, where the Holy Spirit is a stimulant. It, It makes you see things wonderfully and gloriously. The second difference between the two is that drunkenness leads to foolishness. I'm pretty sure about this. I don't think anyone in the Holy Spirit has ever put a lampshade on their head and thought it was funny. But drunkenness leads to foolishness, right? And the Holy Spirit leads to wisdom. And then the final difference between the two, and this is probably the most important of them all, is that drunkenness helps you escape reality. It helps you see less of reality. But the Holy Spirit shows you more of reality. You see, drunkenness, you forget all of your problems for a time. And you put them away, but they always come back when you sober up. But with the Holy Spirit... You can take on life's situations, seeing a greater reality, a spiritual reality. You see, the Holy Spirit reveals to our hearts our condition, that we are sinful before God, that we are stubborn, that we are rebellious, but that God loves us and He delights in us and He rejoices over us. That we have eternity with Him, that this life is but a vapor, and so it puts everything else in our life into perspective. And so the Holy Spirit gives us true reality, 
the spiritual reality that is so hard to see. For the Ephesians, the temple worship was actually filled with drunkenness and sexual uh, promiscuity. And that was their way of dealing with reality. And Paul says, you don't need to run away from reality. You need to see more of reality because it is glorious in Christ Jesus. And so he says that we are to not get drunk, but that we are supposed to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I look at this being filled with the Holy Spirit, it was a bit confusing to me because I thought, boy, this is, this is what God does. I don't, I don't fill myself with the Holy Spirit. God fills me with the Holy Spirit. And what was helpful for me was the commentary that showed that there are really two works of the Holy Spirit. The first is a saving work of the Holy Spirit. If you would look in Ephesians 1.13, it's just one page back in the Red Bible. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so that is the saving work of the Holy Spirit, that he seals your salvation, that he puts a stamp on you that says this one belongs to God. And he seals you for all eternity so you cannot lose that salvation. He maintains the salvation for you. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. But then there is not only the saving work of the Spirit, there is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, meaning that it matures us in our salvations. Look in Ephesians three sixteen, same page 977, says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is what is Paul's praying, that we would depend on the Holy Spirit to grow in grace. You know, I think of when I go skiing, and uh, it's hard to give a good illustration of this, but when I go skiing and you have to get on the ski lift to go up the hill, right? Ultimately, what you could do is you could try to ski back up the hill, but you would get tired, right? And you would, you would fall back down. But you have to depend on on the ski lift to carry you up the hill. This is a picture of what it's like to grow in our righteousness, that we would depend, that we would rest upon the Holy Spirit in our hearts to grow us, that we would not depend on our own efforts, but that we would wholly rest upon Him because only the Holy Spirit that saves us can be the same one that transforms us. It is an act of God to remove you from the besetting sin in your life. And so we have to depend on the Holy Spirit one of the membership vows for Jacob's Well, for our denomination, goes like this. It's the third question. It says, Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the follower of Christ? Imagine what that statement would be like without the underlying part. Imagine if it just said, Do you now resolve and promise that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? There is no power in that. What we're learning here is Paul's saying the Holy Spirit is the one that transforms you. Depend on Him. Rest on Him. Let Him carry you up that hill. Let Him fight the battle for you, but rest upon Him. And so we are called to let the Holy Spirit fill us, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to grow in righteousness, in godliness, to grow in wisdom as we redeem the time. Redeem the days that are evil. Now, Paul goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us, the fruit of the Spirit growing in us. 
And there are two things that he looks at here. The first is singing, and the second is thanksgiving. But let's first look at singing. He says in verse 19, Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Did you know, this was shocking to me, the second most frequent command in Scripture is to sing. The first is to pray. The second is to sing. And so the question is, why is singing so important to God? The reason is because God made singing extremely powerful. Theologian named Martin Luther said, if you want to comfort the sad, if you want to terrify the happy, if you want to encourage the despairing, if you want to humble the proud, if you want to pacify the aggressive, there is no more effective means than music. I think of the power of music every 4th of July when, you know, that song comes on, I'm proud to be an American, right? And like every guy over 50 starts crying. It's powerful, right? Music is powerful. I remember as a kid, like on my bed, jumping around, humming the tune, you know, to the eye of the tiger, right? Thinking I'm Rocky. You all know what I'm talking about. Music is extremely powerful. God made it to be powerful so that he could use it for our transformation and for his glory. And he gives here two audiences of our singing. The first, he says, sing to each other. Verse 19, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Music is a testimony to the order and the beauty of God. As we gather each Sunday morning and we sing, something glorious is happening. I think we we get confused and we think, you know, the real meat of Worship on Sunday morning is the sermon. And so like music is kind of like the buns, but the real meat is the sermon. And that's where it's at. Even as a preacher, sometimes I'd like to think that that's true. But the reality is, is that when you go home throughout the week, you are probably not reciting my sermon. But there is a good chance that there is a song from this service that warms your heart that you start to sing out in great joy. There's a story about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in London, and they were having an evening service, and a man passed by the church, and he was going to the river, the Time River, uh, to throw himself in and to kill himself. But he heard this music, and it was glorious, and it wooed him into the church. And the man heard the music, and he was transformed, and he trusted in Christ because of music. Music is so extremely powerful and so when we gather here and sing we sing primarily for the lord but we also sing for each other to encourage one another of the truths of the gospel the other audience is we sing to the lord he says sing and make melody to the lord in your heart paul is saying that those who are maturing in christianity it is their delight in the depths of their soul in the depths of their heart to sing the glories of God, to rejoice in Him, to make Him their greatest affection. And so He calls us to sing in the depths of our heart to God. Now there's a question. Do we sing to be filled with the Holy Spirit or do we sing because the Holy Spirit is filling us? Do we sing for joy, to gain joy, or do we sing because we have joy? And the answer to that is yes. Both of them are true. There's a great statement by, uh, by a man named R.C. Sproul. I'm sorry, by C.S. Lewis. He says, I think we delight to praise 
what we enjoy. Because the praise does not merely express, but completes the enjoyment. The praise doesn't merely express, but completes the enjoyment. See, our love and our delight in God is not complete until we express it. You know, if you've ever been through high school and you had a secret crush on someone, you know, you longed to tell that person how you felt. You longed to praise that person, to tell them how great you thought they were. And your enjoyment of that person is incomplete because you can never communicate that to them, right? What, what, what God is saying here is that not only do you praise me because you enjoy me, but when you praise me, you grow in enjoyment of me. As you see people walking through their house singing praises to God, it is not only because they enjoy him, but it grows their enjoyment of him. And so God calls us to sing. He also calls us walking in wisdom to walk in thanksgiving. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we are walking by the Holy Spirit, we understand that everything is a gift of God's grace, that we don't deserve anything. Pastor Jim over at New Hope, who I, who I worked with for a while, when someone was struggling with depression, he would give them an assignment. He said, I want you to go for five minutes a day and just journal and write down all the things you are thankful for in your life, all the things that God has given to you. And see, what he's doing is he is reminding them of what God has done. He's not giving them things to be thankful for. He's reminding them of all that God has given to them. You know, we take many, many things for granted. I remember when I went off to college, how this was a startling reality to me. All of a sudden, I became a whole lot more thankful for my parents, who would cook things like steak and would take me out to eat and would have cheese in the fridge. Because at college, I didn't have that stuff. You know, I took it all for granted, and I became so much more thankful and started thanking them for all the things that they had done. And so for us, we are called to give thanks to God before we eat, saying, Lord, thank you for fajitas. They are amazing. You didn't have to make it, but you did so that we could enjoy it. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for our salvation. Thank you for all that you do for us. And so we walk in wisdom through singing and through giving thanksgiving. As I, as I looked at this passage and prepared to preach it, a, 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 a text came to mind out of the Old Testament, one that also commands singing, one that also commands worship. In the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah is a prophet, and he is communicating the word of God. And he is communicating that there is judgment due to the people of Judah and to the people of the world because their worship has been perverted because it has been wrong. And Josiah is in the process of restoring, King Josiah, restoring proper worship. But God says, you deserve my judgment because your worship has been so horrible. You have been worshiping other gods and other idols. And then he gives this command in Zephaniah 3.14. He says, sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. Very similar today. Sing aloud. Give thanks, rejoice in your heart. And you read this and you're saying, why would they possibly give praise to God? Why would they possibly worship God when he just pronounced all the judgment that's due to them? And the reason is, is because he is a covenant-keeping God who loves them, who has redeemed them, who has given them his wisdom. And it goes on and fully explains this answer in verse 17. It says, the Lord your God 
is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. See, God can be the object of your love song because the object of his love song is you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, as you call us to wisdom, you call us to redeem our time. You call us to be filled with the Spirit. You call us to be filled with an understanding of your will. Lord, all of these things are supernatural and we cannot do them on our own. And so we rest upon you to do these things in us. Help us to trust in your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts that we might sing with great joy and great boldness and great thankfulness for who you are and what you have done. In Christ Jesus, your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.